This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We start today with the battle over high school basketball in the city of Surrey, and specifically the junior boys team at Kitsilano Secondary School disqualified from the city's high school championship tournament. Why were they kicked out? Officials say it's because the team had an ineligible player in the lineup for several games during the regular season. The team says it was an honest mistake. It doesn't matter. The team is booted anyway. I've got Kitsilano basketball coach Kenny McIntyre standing by to discuss. The team now fighting to get into the provincial tournament. First, have a listen to this report from Global News reporter Paul Johnson. This may be the last hurrah of the season for the Kitsilano High School Junior Boys basketball team. And it's not because of anything the boys did on or off the court. At 9.04, I got this phone call from our athletic director. said, our season's over. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Kenny McIntyre. Kenny is the coach of the Kitsilano Secondary School Junior Basketball Team. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Kenny, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, Mike. How you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks a lot for doing this. So let's see if we can explain this to the listener exactly how this all went down. So at the start of the school year, you had this one kid, a 15-year-old kid, who transferred transferred over to kids to your school from a private school. Correct. That's how this all started. Yeah, uh, correct. I I'm a community coach. Um, I you make some assumptions as a community coach when you walk into the gym and there's a note posted for basketball tryouts and a bunch of kids show up. Yeah. Typically, they go to the school. Um, we don't interview them about their past very much, but uh, he, yeah, he transferred in from another school. Right, and that's against the rules, we're told, right? Like, if you transfer from another school, you're supposed to sit out for a year, correct? Uh, I, I know that as of now. Uh, yeah. I was told he had to do some paperwork to, um, to transfer schools. It was the interpretation that we were working under throughout the season. Right. And um, again, like I, I don't work in the school board. I don't administer the sport uh, at that level. I we coach basketball. And uh, how many game? How many games? How many games did he play in the regular season? He played about half. He had a broken hand, so he was out for the first little while. Okay, so he played what six games or something like that, or? Well, it's funny. We play 31 games this year, and only five of them are regular season games, just by the way the, the season's drawn out. Yeah. Uh, you play each team once in your 4A catchment. Uh, so we're, we're looking back, but unfortunately everything's on paper um, with the school board. There's nothing digital. We have some digital scoring that we do, but that's reliant on parents, and we don't have every game scored. Um, I'm pretty sure he missed one or two regular season games. Okay. But we... Uh, that's a whole other conversation, but uh, one that we oh. maybe have here. Okay, so 
I guess the reason for the rule that if a kid transfers from another school, he has to sit out for a year, I guess is to prevent schools from bringing in like a ringer, like bringing in some super highly skilled player to try and get an unfair advantage from another school. So to guard against that... Go ahead. Yeah, the intent of the rule makes sense. Recruiting and stacking teams yeah. outside your catchment at this level is, is so strange. It's We're talking about 15-year-old high school basketball. We're not talking about uh, university here where recruiting is what you do. We don't recruit. We show up at the gym and we coach kids. That's what we do to try to get them to, to play a sport that is the number one participatory sport in the country from the ages 12 to, 17, to 17 now. Right, so it's not like, you know, like you said, this is not NCAA March Madness here. Like, you didn't know, did you know who this kid was before he showed up in no, the gym that day? Okay. Not a clue. Not a clue. So, again, the intent of the rule makes sense because they shouldn't, yeah. coaches should not be recruiting and stacking teams. Right. But the, in, the intent of the rule and the application of the rule here are so inverse. Right, and is this this particular kid, we're not using the kid's name, by the way. He's 15 years old, and, uh, you know, it's not necessary to identify the, this kid. But the, if let me the ask. If it was Bronny James, we could use his name. Yeah, but you're Bronny saying James. he's you're you're saying he's not he was not like LeBron James. Like, was he like a super highly skilled player? Did he did he score a pile of points in these games he played in? We are a very balanced team. I think he's averaging four and a half, five points a game on the year. Oh, okay, um, we're not. Yeah, it's uh, it's, we're not. Uh, sorry, uh, player, but you're. You're not Bryce James. <laughs> you're great. You're great. I love having you on the team, but uh, we're yeah. not talking about we're not recruiting um, players here. Yeah. Okay. So it's not like he was this dominant uh, player on the court. No, but that's that's even for for nothing in this situation. He's just a kid that's yeah. going to his local catchment high school, and that, yeah. that's what high school basketball is. Okay. So after you found out, once you became aware that, that this kid should not have been playing from the start, you, you you he was pulled off the team. Is that correct? Yeah, we had a really tough conversation with him. You know, it yeah. crushes dreams and the, like his sense of purpose for the year. Basketball for so many kids, sports are their sense of purpose, and we had yeah. to tell him, "Hey, there's this rule that none of us knew until now, including your family, um, and this sucks. You can't play basketball with us for the rest of the year." And we moved on, and we went to the city championships. Uh, I've coached this team for two years. We haven't lost a league game or a playoff game yet in two years. And uh, we played our first playoff game. And then the VSSAA was notified of our violation last minute and operated at overnight. And at 9.04 in the morning, I got the message that we had to forfeit our whole season. Okay, so how did all that go down? You received a call. For, what is VSSA? What is that? Vancouver Secondary School Athletic Association, which is a... Right. Um, the athletics department of the VSB, the Vancouver School Board. Right. So they so, phoned you. They phoned you and told you. So what went through your no, mind? No, you no, heard... no. They've never talked oh. to me. Oh. They called our principal and told our principal that she has a directive to inform the team that they're out. Oh boy. That's it. Okay. So when you heard and this that news, that was at nine in the morning that I got that message from our athletic director. I rallied to the school, spoke with the principal about, you know, the, the tournament still had to go on, and I understand that. I've run. Of global events my whole life like i i get managing the event but the the notification was going out at eleven thirty, and i was i said well let's do everything we can to advocate for these kids and the actual facts of the situation yeah. in the next hour and a half and all i was told was the decision's been made 
Okay, and, so tell me about the reaction from these other kids because these are the these are the other the kids the other kids on the team are the ones who are stuck in the middle of this. So you had did you break the news to them that the season they'd been disqualified? Yeah, we met in the team room and I was there with them and uh, another coach and then the administration from the school and the administration gave them the very dry delivery of sorry, these are the rules. Um, this is what it is. Yeah, and what was that yeah, like? You in know, there? it was nice that they offered the, the counselors to them, but let's be honest, if you've ever been around 15-year-old kids, if the system lets them down, they're not looking towards the system for answers. Their answers are in the 94 feet of the basketball court. That's where they find their answers. They're 15. They love the sport. They just want yeah. to play. Yeah. yeah. Now, I understand there was an appeal process here, and you did lodge an appeal unsuccessful, correct? We launched an appeal towards his eligibility specifically. Yeah. There was an appeal process um, that was denied. And that's with BC School Sports. BC School Sports is a governing body that runs the senior championships across the province as well as player eligibility. Um, their briefing notes to us coaches were nil. I, I guess they, they communicate directly. Well, I know they communicate directly with administrators of the school because I, I sent them some feedback on this actual eligibility ruling. And their response was, thanks for your feedback. We only communicate with administrators. So the coaches are not stakeholders in this process. Let me ask you about, I'm already getting some messages here from listeners. I'm looking at one tweet. I'm I'm, I'm just looking at a a tweet that I just, I just popped up on my screen here, Kenny. And it says, if they broke a rule, change the rule. If you don't like the rule, my kid sat out a year because of this rule. Don't punish the schools and the kids who follow the rules. What do you say to that? Yeah, 100%. Again, rule, I, I, in general, I understand the rule. Yeah. The, we didn't know we broke the rule, and it's not the fault of the kids. And it's certainly, I, it shouldn't be the fault of a two-year coach at a school that hasn't had an experience with this when there's paid administration along the way to stopgap this. And it's right. really an adult error. And I, you know, I've read the comment section all weekend. The comment section is crazy. People are talking about 1998 and transfers. And I'm like, this is nothing to do with the current situation. Um, I don't think we're punishing the schools that followed the rules here. And even in talking to the coach that replaced us, they didn't want to play the game. They had already lost mm-hmm. us. They, we didn't play the player. Like most coaches and administrators of a sport with common sense let the kids decide. And I suggested, let's have a call with all the coaches and say, here's the situation. This is an honest mistake. We can come to better answers for honest mistakes than this. Okay, okay Kenny. kids, you're out. I think it's like completely unfair that like we don't get a play anymore like for some stupid reason. The administration failed the children, and the children are paying the price for that. The crime doesn't fit the punishment. Okay, that's uh, voices of some of the players and parents there with the Kitsilano Secondary School Junior Basketball team now disqualified from the city's championship. Why were they disqualified? As school officials say there was an ineligible player on the team for a few games during the regular season. Coach Kenny McIntyre says it was an innocent mistake. It was a mix-up. Phone me now. Do you think they should be allowed to play? 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898, toll free in your cell. Vicky in Delta. Hi, Vicky. What do you think? Well, of course they should be able to play. 
I mean, we were stuck in the same thing in for hockey. And my my two boys were eight and nine years old, and we wanted to change to Burnaby Winter Club, and they had to sit out from a community, you know, hockey association to Burnaby. We had to sit out for the whole year. I went to the newspaper, and it was in the newspaper. But these are kids, for God's yeah. sake. Yeah. Of course. I mean, it's not like they're super basketball players or anything. I mean, they just want to play. That's absolutely absurd. Thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, it's like we said earlier, it's, like, it's not like this is NCAA, you know, March Madness level where un- understandably there would be strict rules around this kind of stuff. And we were talking about a 14, 15-year-old kids in, in high school. Kenny, I, I know that you appealed, and one of the things we discussed off-air was this this particular player, the reason he transferred from a, a private school back into the public school in Kits was because of an economic issue with his family. Family couldn't afford the tuition anymore, as I understand it. So does that not allow a, an appeal on compassionate grounds? It does by rule, um, and that's what we talked about. But the enforcement of the rule there, again, seems strange where they were the only thing the board, the only thing they wanted to know was earnings of the family, not the actual what's going on economically. Like, I, I, and again, oh. I'm not here to comment on their process. I think the rule in general should be relooked at, but certainly as a parent, and knowing the economic pressure of 2023, everyone's under it. And this and kid, if you this kid, go to your catchment high school from a private school, I, there should be way less stress on that transfer, especially without any kind of recruiting and your point on the catchment issue is that this this kid lives in kitsilano so it's not like he's coming from another neighborhood in the city he lived he's a local local kid in kits right yeah everything was yeah, difficult about right. him going to private school parents had to drive him there and get him there every day he just wanted to go to his local school well i don't i don't even know if he wanted to go to his local school but his parents did let's so, go back to you know, the back kid to the, is, yeah. is stuck back to the phone lines ron in vancouver ron go ahead hi how you doing I'm Thanks good. Go ahead. Yourself. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so just, just a couple of points. Um, one, the only schools that do recruiting in the city are private schools. That's for starters, because they have something to offer. And they do all their recruiting basically in grade eight. Once in a while, they do recruit a star player, and that's why they, they sit out. And that's sort of just responding to that one quote that you mentioned. Um, with regards to what happened at Kitts, the administrators of Kitts are the ones that are responsible for documenting these kids and making sure that the rules are applied but also who are they appointed by they're appointed by the school board well the school board are the ones that made this decision so it's, okay. it's this circle loop where these guys screwed over a bunch of 15 year old kids that had nothing to do with any of this nor did the coach thank you okay Ken, kenny what do you think of that yeah it's really tough um i'm I, I love coaching basketball i've studied coaching basketball i work with very different levels of the sport across the country and um the administration the administrative side of the vancouver and bc school sports i think there's lots of areas for improvement things like using our web hosting platform to have rosters posted um scoring the games digitally so we have records that are easy to to see i we tried to live stream the games all last year for our families so they could watch their kids play during covid it's 2023 live streaming is so easy to do. And we actually our web hosting platform for the league supports it. So all these things could be there. And then we'd have, then we'd have a body of evidence to make decisions as well. Okay. See the player, all these things. So there's so many things to do this. Kenny, when is the, when are the, when is the provincial championship tournament? 
Oh, it starts this weekend. So no. uh, our, our weekend was this past weekend was uh, preparing the at-large bid um, paperwork, and we sent that in. And you know, we only want to be there on merit. We don't want anyone to feel like they're doing us a favor. Okay, these kids play good. Ba- they play basketball. Uh, they want to compete as much as they can. If any of you, any of the listeners have played sport or their child's have played sport, this is their NCAA tournament. For the grade 10 kids, this might, some of them, this will probably be their last year they played basketball. Kenny, this thank you. Compression Thanks, grade 11 so hard. Thank you for coming on today. We'll continue to follow it. Appreciate your time. Cheers, Mike. Thanks for chatting. Uh, Okay, let's talk about the price of running a small business in our province now. You start taking a look at some of the input costs for running a business in BC. A lot of these cost pressures have gone up. You consider like the minimum wage increases. I mean, that's just the start of it. Think about rising property taxes. How about paid sick days, mandatory paid sick days in British Columbia? That can add up as well. Another statutory holiday. This was recently announced by the B.C. government, uh, Truth and Reconciliation Day, obviously a very important issue. But it's another cost pressure on business with another stat holiday. Let's discuss this now with my guest, Jairo Yunus. Jairo is the Senior Policy Analyst for Western Canada. Canadian Federation of Independent Business. They represent small business in our country. Jairo, thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me, Mike. Yeah, you bet. Let's, let's, let's talk about these cost pressures here. What are you hearing from your people? Like, are, are people telling you it's getting more expensive to run a business these days? Oh, for sure. Small businesses in BC, as you mentioned, are facing significant cost challenges due to a very difficult economic environment with inflation, rising interest rates, ongoing labor shortages, and increased payroll costs, as you mentioned as well. And that is why we're asking the province to provide some cost relief for small businesses who have faced significant cost increases over the last two years. Okay, let's talk about some of these individual pressures here. How about the health employer tax? How does that one impact the bottom line, the, the health tax? Yeah, so, for example, out of the three provinces that have an employer health tax, B.C. has the lowest payroll exemption threshold, which is around $500,000, whereas in Ontario, you're exempted if, you, if your business has a payroll of a million dollars or less, and in Manitoba, it's $2 million. So, And to put that into perspective as well, for a small business with, say, 10 employees that pay roughly $500,000 in wages, they have to pay a $3,000 a year in employer health tax. And that's on top of the almost $10,000 a year you have to pay in workplace PC premiums and uh, $17,000 roughly a year that you have to pay in paid sick days. Okay, that's very interesting about the exemption threshold there. So if you have a $500,000 payroll or more, you're required to pay this tax. And the threshold, as you described, is higher in other provinces. So for people listening who say, well, hang on a sec, if, you have a, if you're running a business and your payroll is half a million dollars, isn't that, is that a big business? That's, a small, that, that's actually a small business. So, for example, yeah. a small business with 10 employees that pay roughly average median wage in BC, you, you're paying almost $600,000 in wages. If yeah. you account for all the payroll taxes and payroll costs, whether it's EHT, like if you add EHT, CPP, EI, work safe PC, and paid sick days, you have to pay roughly almost $80,000 in payroll costs on top of wages. 
which are going significantly up as well. And that's why we're asking the province to provide some cost relief for small businesses. Okay, let's talk about another stat holiday. So we just had a stat holiday yesterday. Of course, we had Family Day in BC. The BC government has announced another new stat holiday for Truth and Reconciliation Day. Is this another cost pressure for small business? Definitely. And as I mentioned, Mike, small businesses in the province are really struggling to navigate this very difficult economic times on top of all the payroll pressures. So adding another payroll cost is very difficult for them to, to shoulder. For example, if you're a small business with 10 employees, a stat holiday costs around $2,000 just in labor costs without accounting for the losses in revenue. So we believe it's time the BC government listens and provides some cost relief to small business owners in the upcoming budget. What is the rule on a stat holiday? Like, let's say you have an employee who works on a stat. What Are they paid time and a half, or how does that work? Well, it depends. So if, if, you, don't, if you're, you don't open your business that day, you don't, uh, well, you, you, have to, you still have to pay that, that employee. Okay. Uh, right? Yeah. So, so it's almost $2,000 in labor costs if you have 10 employees, for example. So it's a, it's a paid day off if, you're, if your business is closed. Yes. Yeah, it's a yeah. Day off, exactly. Right, okay. Speaking to Hiro Yunus, we're talking about increasing costs to run a small business in British Columbia. Let's talk about mandatory paid sick days. Now, this is the law of the land in our province now. Five a year, right? Yes. Five paid sick days a year in British Columbia. That is the rule. Now, have a listen to the Labour Minister here, Harry Baines, talking about this, because he will argue, you, you listen to him closely here, it's, he makes it sound like this is something a business actually wanted the province to do. Have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts. So this is the Labour Minister here, Harry Baines. This has made a big difference to workers who can stay home and get healthy with peace of mind, to employers who are ensuring that the customers and their employees are safe, and to our community by reducing the spread of COVID-19. Now we must look to the future. Everyone value safe workplaces. Employers do not want their employees to come to work sick. They have made this point loud and clear. Paid sick leave is the best way to achieve this. Okay, so he says employers have made it loud and clear. We don't want our workers coming to work here if they're sick and making everybody else sick. So therefore, paid sick days is the way to go. You pay, pay your employer to stay home so they're not tempted to come into work if they're sick. It sounded like the way he phrased it there was, you know, it's like business actually wanted this. But what has been the impact of this, mandatory paid sick days? Well, Mike, as British Columbians, we all have a stake in creating a strong and healthy economy where business, businesses can thrive and workers are supported. But if you want to ensure that workers have access to paid sick days, we need to find a way to do so that doesn't put undue burden on small businesses. And as I mentioned before, for a small business with 10 employees, paid sick days is costing them $17,000 a year. And we are the only province where small businesses must pay paid sick leave without having any offsetting measure or cost relief from the government. For example, the government in Ontario reimburses the cost of paid sick days to small businesses, just as it was in B.C., uh, before before 2022 and during the pandemic. So that's why we're asking the government to can shift that cost burden uh, from small businesses to government oh. or provide some other cost-offsetting measures. Okay, that's very interesting. So you're saying that in Ontario, if there's a, 
a sick, a paid sick day, you're saying the government pays the salary of the sick employee? Is that right? So, so in Ontario, there's three paid sick days, uh, and okay. it's a continuation of the of the paid sick days that was uh, implemented during the pandemic. So, right. if you're an eligible small business, you can apply for for the go- to the government for them to reimburse that cost of paid sick days, which is exactly what we're asking the BC government to do. Well, wow. so they can apply to have 100 percent covered. I don't, I don't know the details, but I know there is reimbursement mm. in the Government of Ontario program. Okay. And, but, as it was here in BC during the pandemic. But there's none now. So, like, if you're an employer in British Columbia, you have, you have sick staff, they have a mandatory paid sick day off, off sick. That's totally out of the pocket of the employer. There's no government contribution no, there? No, okay. no, there's no cost offsetting measures. There's no shift in the cost of burden there. It's all employer paid. And again... I want to reiterate that we're the only province uh, where it's employer-paid sick days. Yeah. What about the argument here, and we heard the Labour Minister outline it here, that this is actually this is actually a good thing for business. Like, I've talked to analysts who will say that, you know what, small business, should you should take your blinders off here because this is actually a good thing. It maybe actually saves you money in the long run because it prevents a sick worker from coming in and making everybody else sick cost even more. Are you are you are you buying that? I mean, uh, as I mentioned before, like as as British Columbians, we all have a stake in creating like a strong and healthy economy. But if you add paid sick days on top of increased CPP premiums, on top of employment insurance premiums, on top of work safety premiums, on top of an uh, employer's health tax, all these costs add add up, you know. And if we yeah. want to ensure that workers have access to paid sick days, which then like. As, as the labor minister mentioned, employers don't want their employees to come in sick. And so it's a desirable policy goal, but we need to find a way to do so that doesn't put undue burden on small businesses who are really, really struggling to stay afloat in these challenging economic times. Okay, we have a provincial budget coming up here in a few days. And so you're, you've already outlined some of your asks there. So you would like to see a higher threshold for an exemption from this employer health tax. You'd like to see the government... Uh, compensate business for paid sick days, right? Anything else? You guys looking for tax breaks? So, yeah, I just wanted to say that most of the province's $5.7 billion surplus that they printed was largely driven by higher-than-expected corporate income tax revenues, which are, as you know, paid by businesses. And the province has already committed a third of this to much-needed affordability measures for households. But small businesses also need some affordability measures. And we believe that the government is in a position to provide some cost relief to small businesses so they can better weather this very challenging economic time. So, for example, shifting the cost burden of paid sick days, uh, yeah. increasing the payroll exemption threshold for the, for the employer's health tax, uh, also working a little bit on the red tape file to remove some international and interprovincial labor mobility barriers so we can address some of the labor short, acute labor shortages that small businesses are experiencing right now. Um, and for exa- also, uh, we know that WorkSafe BC is sitting on a $3.4 billion employer-paid surplus. So we're also asking them to, re- to rebate some of that money to small businesses. Wow. Iro, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on this today. Thank you so much, Mike. Have a good day. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. 
and they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Okay, we've continued to talk about the bombshell stories that have come out from Globe and, uh, Global News and also from the Globe and Mail recently. Chinese state interference in Canada's elections. This is the recent article, front page of the Globe and Mail last week. The uh, a CSIS article, CSIS documents, top secret in some cases, seen by the reporters at the Globe and Mail, indicating a, a sophisticated program of interference in Canada's recent elections. Earlier, Global News also reporting similar. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was asked about this last week. He said, look, we knew this was going on, and we're working to counteract it. Here's what he had to say. Have a listen. I have been saying for years, including on the floor of the House of Commons, that China is trying to interfere in our democracy, in the processes in our country, including during our elections. We are aware of this, and I can assure you that our intelligence and security agencies have been working very hard over the past many years to develop more and more tools to counter this. Okay, as Trudeau speaking the other day, he says that Canada has been working to counteract this. He says that they knew that this was going on. Have a listen to Pierre Polyev here now, the conservative leader who doesn't believe that Canada has been taking this seriously. Here's what he had to say. Have a listen. The Prime Minister has been aware of allegations of a foreign government interfering in our elections, including by funneling illegal donations, to nearly a dozen political candidates. He's known about this, these allegations for uh, almost a year and done nothing. Pierre Polyev is saying Canada has done nothing to counteract Chinese state interference in Canadian elections. If you think about it, have any Chinese diplomats been expelled from the country? Have there been any criminal charges in this case? Let's discuss it now with my guest, Charles Burton, Senior Fellow, McDonald Laurier Institute. Charles is a former counselor to Canada's embassy in China. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Charles, thanks a lot for coming on today. It's good to speak with you, Mike. It's a great story. Yeah, it really is. It has everyone in Canada talking, and I think rightly so. And what, what do you make of it, Charles? We've just played some clips of Justin Trudeau saying, look, we, knew all, we know all about this. We've been working to counteract it. You hear Pierre Polyev, the conservative leader, saying, no, 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 the government's done nothing. What's your take on it? Well, I, I think certainly the uh, the CSIS report, uh, you know, reported on by the Globe Mail, uh, does seem to be a very credible document because it it fits with uh, a lot of what people like me have been saying for some years about the activities of the um, Chinese uh, embassy and consulates in Canada. Um, you know, the prime minister's suggestion is, well, you know, we've known about it for a long time, but uh, and we're uh, we're acting on it, although. You know, we have absolutely no evidence, as you point out in your introduction, of any action um, because no one has been arrested. None of the agents of the Chinese state have been arrested, and, and no Chinese diplomats have been declared persona non grata 
Um, so, you know, one has to sort of question that one. It does seem to be a problem that CSIS has this information, is sharing it with lots of our allies, including uh, intelligence services outside the Five Eyes, and doesn't seem to be transferring the information over to the RCMP for action. But, you know, the Prime Minister's suggestion is, oh, that doesn't really matter because, you know, he has information that did not affect the result of the um, of either the 2019 or 2021 election strikes me as a bit uh, doubtful because, I mean, how could he possibly know what informed the choice of people in a secret ballot? Was the Chinese disinformation instrumental in them changing their voting choice or not? I, I, yeah. I'd like more information on why he's so confident about that one. So the whole story really needs a lot more uh, investigation information and soul-searching about why Canada is not effectively countering a foreign state um, attempting to interfere in our democratic process. Yeah, I think that's a great point because the Prime Minister has been saying, well, look, we knew this was going on, we've been working to counteract it, and, and don't worry because it didn't work. They did not influence the outcome of any recent elections. So, I mean, like you said, how do you know? How do you know they haven't? Let's listen to Trudeau on this point, then I'll get your thoughts. So this is Prime Minister Trudeau speaking just the other day. Listen. All Canadians can have total confidence that the outcomes of the 2019 and the 2021 elections were determined by Canadians, Canadians alone at the voting booth. Okay, well, he says you can have total confidence that, that this didn't work. How can he say that, Charles? I mean, what is the evidence that it did not work? I agree. I mean, we. I don't have total confidence. And, you know, yeah. when Minister Mendocino was asked if the people that were advising the Prime Minister on that panel, the senior civil servants that's supposed to keep on top of whether elections are, are uh, free and fair, had seen the CSIS reports, uh, there was no answer to that. So I'm wondering if any advice they gave the Prime Minister that, oh yeah, no problems with those elections, we can move on, uh, was not based on being given fulsome information that the Government of Canada had already obtained. And after all, the Chinese Consul General in um, Vancouver, Kung Xiaoling, um, you know, was quite triumphantly declaring, according to the CSIS information, that uh, they had been successful in defeating two conservative candidates, Kenny Chiu and Alice Wong, both candidates yeah. in the Vancouver area. So, yeah. you know, I'd really like the Prime Minister to give us a bit more information beyond, uh, we, you know, trust us, uh, we have the information, but we can't tell you what it is for operational reasons. I really wonder if there are any operations that they can't disclose i just like more evidence that our government is um, going to do something so that the Chinese regime is not emboldened to do a lot more of this in the next election, mm. seeing as there appear to be absolutely no consequences to the embassy or their, or their agents in Canada for engaging in this kind of outrageous interference. Speaking of Charles Burton, McDonald Laurier Institute, the bombshell reports out here on Chinese state interference in Canadian elections. Hey Charles, how does this how does this type of operation go down? Like how does this effectively work on the ground? Like I know that China has a they have a lot of diplomats in Canada, right? So are, are they the kind of the point people here who who work on these schemes? Yes, I mean, you know, the Chinese Communist Party has what's called the United Front Work Department, 
which is designed to engage in deceptive influence and corruption of Canada's national policies, officials, research institutions, and democratic processes to serve the interests of China. And that's a big operation in China. They've got 40,000 people working in that department for the wow. party, and it's considered one of the three main elements of the party, aside from party building and armed struggle, in other words, the, the army. But if you look at, at the list of diplomatic representatives in Canada produced by Global Affairs, you see that China has 146 people here compared to Japan with 46, India with 35, and uh, Britain with 23. So you wow. can't help but wonder that a significant portion of that 146 are in fact engaged in activities which are not compatible with their diplomatic status where they're trying to, you know, coerce and menace people of Chinese origin or engage in disinformation and election interference and, you know, attempting to influence senior officials of the Canadian regime by offering incentives, possibly things that will happen to get them money in retirement or something like that. So, you know, mm. I think we should be looking into which of the diplomats are involved in that sort of activity and, and sending them back to Beijing. You know, it just... Why should we tolerate uh, Chinese diplomats who are doing things that go directly against Canada's security and sovereignty? Yeah, no, it's interesting what you just said there about what kind of benefits could conceivably potentially be offered to Canadian officials. And obviously, you know, you, you talk about Chinese business connections to Canada, which are extensive. I mean, you could have a situation where, what, like a Chinese officials could surreptitiously say to Canadian officials, look, if you don't criticize China or you advance these policies that are maybe in our interest that it'll pay off for you later with some sort of business deal after down the road? Is that how it works? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, law firms that do a lot of work with China, you know, would not hire a, a former Canadian politician who was known to have, to have expressed views that the Chinese embassy didn't like or yeah, different right. boards of directors. I mean, you know, the, a lot of these politicians are are out of politics in their, you know, mid-50s. I mean, that is likely to be the case with Justin Trudeau, for example. And they want to be making big money. And, you know, China can be the route to that. As one of my colleagues in Britain says, life-transforming amounts of cash. So, you know, that factor is certainly a factor, and that's why we need a foreign influence registry to require that people in the policy process who are recipients of benefits from a foreign government should publicly declare it so that we can detect if there's any conflict of interest in their views and lobbying and that kind of thing. Okay, we've got a few minutes left with Charles Burton, McDonald Laurier Institute, as we continue to talk about Chinese state interference in Canada's elections. The bombshell reports out now from Global News, the Globe and Mail, uh, both news outlets have seen high-level CSIS documents, some of them top secret, outlining a Chinese state interference in Canada. You heard that clip of the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau saying, well, this doesn't surprise him. He said that we know this is going on. We've been working to counteract it. I, I want to play a clip here for you, Charles. This is from yesterday's show. I spoke to Phil Gursky. He's a former analyst at CSIS, and we talked about how the media are getting access to these top-level CSIS documents. And here's what he had to say, and I'll get your thoughts. Phil Gursky on yesterday's show. How these reporters got a hold of these documents 
Were they actually from CSIS? Were they from other people who had access to them as well? So that's not clear. We don't know if it was somebody within CSIS or a customer, i.e. another government official who has access to the information you shared. Right. That's still remain, right. remains unknown, which points to a really poor intelligence culture in Canada. Okay, it's interesting. Like He's a former CSIS analyst himself, and obviously they take oaths of, of secrecy. I mean, this is, they, we're talking about Canada's secret agents here. They're not supposed to be giving out stuff to the media. But we don't know where these doc. you know, did the documents come from CSIS or maybe they came from one of our intelligence partners who've also seen these documents. Charles, your thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I've had uh, security clearance before when I worked in the communication security establishment and some other jobs that I've done. And, you know, I take that extremely seriously. And I have, you know, seen a lot of material that was classified that I'm thinking, I don't know why they classified this. Why, why can't it be um, made public? You know, that... I think there's a tendency to to classify to you know sometimes cover your ass, but a lot of the times there's just a culture that they want to curate the information but not share it. Um, if it you know as as uh, Phil Gursky says, a very uh, uh, excellent uh, observer of CSIS with a lot of authority, it could have come from one of the um, partner agencies that the report was shared with. But if it does come from people inside CSIS or other elements of the government that saw it. That really suggests the kind of split in Ottawa between people working on the ground who are very concerned about, um, you know, our security and sovereignty and a political center that uh, may be too fearful of economic retaliation by China to act or something like that. So, you know, it, it suggests something very seriously wrong. Um, and the fact that all of this has come out and has not been acted on really uh, is something I think Canadians cannot just let go by we have to see some effective changes and we need to see them now yeah i think it's a great point that this type of information is coming out and does that indicate that perhaps within canada's security and intelligence apparatus that maybe there are some people who are not happy that there have been no consequences like we talked earlier about there have been there have been no diplomats who have been declared persona non grata and kicked out of the country there have been no criminal charges that, that I'm aware of related to Chinese state interference in our elections. It's extremely serious. Like, wh when you talk to people in your circles, are you in picking up any kind of frustration internally among among the people who... frustration from yeah. people on the ground and who are making recommendations to government for restructuring. You know, they always want more money, but a lot of it is about how we're, we're engaging with a very coordinated operation run by the Chinese regime. And those people who, you know, showed those documents to Sam Cooper or Bob Fife and Steve Chase, you know, they could be subject to criminal prosecution and, and put into jail for a long time for violating their oath of secrecy. So, you know, they're not doing it lightly, that's for sure. Yeah, for, that's for, that's a really, really interesting observation. Let me ask, we just got a, a minute and a half left here, Charles. You mentioned the, the need for a foreign influence registry in Canada. How would that work? Well, basically, it would require that people who are in positions of trust should, um, who have received benefits from a foreign state should publicly declare it. So, you know, we have the example of the former Quebec Premier, Jean Charest, who in the course of his leadership campaign, it came out that he'd been receiving a very generous uh, retainer from the Huawei company as their lawyer. I think it was supposed to be 70000 a month over three years. Well, you know, when he was wow. speaking out in favor of Huawei's 5G interests and uh, coordinating other activities to try and um, make the government more amenable to uh, accepting 
what Huawei wanted, it would have been very helpful, I think, for us to know that he was receiving that money and therefore had a potential conflict of interest. I mean, he's done nothing wrong. You know, he's kept within the laws. He says that as a lawyer, he can't be talking about, um, you know, whether he's received money from a, from a, a certain client or not. But if there was this legislation, I believe that we would have known in advance that Mr. Charest was receiving uh, such benefits. And then when he was speaking out in favor of Huawei, we could have taken that into consideration as to whether we wanted to uh, agree with his perspectives. Charles, thank you for your thoughts and your analysis today. I appreciate it. Good to speak with you. All right, here we go with our great debate now. Supersized cars and trucks. These are the most popular vehicles on the road. Take a look at new vehicle sales. Pickup trucks, SUVs. These are the best-selling vehicles in Canada. Are they just too damn big? Are they dangerous because they're so big? Are they energy inefficient? Because they're so heavy, requiring more energy to move around. Check out these stats here. This is from Consumer Reports. Since the year 2000, the average hood height, so the average height of a vehicle, up 11%. Some critics will argue that makes them dangerous to see someone in front of you. You're backing out of your driveway, for example. Look at the average weight here. The average weight of a vehicle has gone up 24% among new vehicles sold in Canada and the United States. Got a great panel just standing by to discuss this. Have a listen to this here now. This is Alyssa Walker, senior writer for Curbed Magazine, and she is complaining about this. She said these cars are just too darn big. Even electric vehicles, even EVs are too big. Have a listen. We've seen this happen over the last decade or so where our cars are getting bigger and bigger. Um, 80%, I think, of the cars sold last month were trucks and SUVs, which is a huge departure from what we saw on the roads, you know, even a decade ago. So what we're calling this like SUV or truck bloat um, is now bleeding over into these vehicles that were supposed to be, you know, built more responsibly and, and in a way that could like pave the way for this, you know, great new future for getting around. All right, let's discuss it now. Both sides of it for you. Peter McCartney, climate change campaigner at the Wilderness Committee. Pleased to welcome him back. Peter, thanks for doing this. Hey, thanks for having me. You bet. Cody Battershills also on the line. Cody is the founder of Canada Action. It's an advocacy group for oil and gas in Canada. Hi, Cody. Hey, Mike, and hey, Peter. Okay, thanks, guys, for both of you for doing this. Peter, let me go to you first. Are cars and trucks just too big? Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen a bit of an arms race in terms of, you know, more uh, vehicles on the roads are getting bigger and bigger, and so people are buying bigger and bigger vehicles to um, c compete or to uh, make sure that they feel safe out on the roads. And so what we've seen is that, yeah, people are buying more trucks and SUVs, and unfortunately for the climate, um, that's erased a lot of the gains that we've made in fuel efficiency over the years. And so as our, as our vehicles have gotten more efficient, uh, we've only been building bigger and bigger. And that's a problem when you think of the amount of pollution that uh, these vehicles are putting into the air that is warming our planet. 
Do you think that it's also a problem even when it comes to electric vehicles? Because I've heard the argument that these EVs are too big, too, and they take more energy. Obviously, it's battery power energy, but it's still more energy, right? Yeah, I mean, so an electric truck, the Ford Lightning, uh, takes about three times as much uh, battery capacity as um, a similar a smaller electric vehicle and so that means more mining for these materials uh you know it means more environmental impacts and it means less um you know batteries available to go around for all the cars uh that we need and so you know i mean i opting for an electric truck over uh an internal combustion engine truck is a is the right call for the environment but we really do need to start looking at ways that we can use less um and lighten our impact on the environment uh okay. when, you know if you need a truck Go ahead and buy one. An electric truck is great. Uh, but, you know, my neighbor who lives in the west end of Vancouver does not need uh, an electric pickup truck. Uh, he can do perfectly well with uh, with something smaller. Cody Battersill, what do you think? Well, I think families and people want to have their own personal choice. I think it's smart for the government to mandate the best possible safety features for all vehicles, continued efficiency gains. The reality of safety, when we talk about how heavy electric vehicles are, uh, first of all, I like electric vehicles, uh, but they're so heavy. And so there's concern in the U.S. with their safety regulator that a heavier electric vehicle could crush some smaller cars. Plus, you have to look at what that grid is using to power the electric vehicle. So getting Canadian natural gas to Asia to replace coal so that their electric vehicles can be lower emission makes a lot of sense. And first and foremost, if we maximize the value of our resources, we have more money to build better transit. So there's a lot of mm. things here we can talk about to protect the climate, to protect safety of pedestrians and of people in cars, and to still allow people their own free uh, choice with the best safety uh, features possible. Okay, you mentioned the heavy EVs. Like, are you saying that an electric vehicle is heavier than an internal combustion vehicle of the same size? A Mustang Mach-E really? electric and the Volvo XC40 are 33% heavier than their gasoline counterparts. Wow. You look at the weight of the engine. And so in, in the U.S., the NTSB is concerned that some of those vehicles could literally crush smaller gasoline cars. Where's the mining coming from? We need to massively expand Canadian mining if we want to sell more electric vehicles. Getting cobalt from child labor in other parts of the world, places where they don't respect freedom, transparency, the freedom to worship and love who you want to worship and love. This is, this is mining, of course, it's also oil and gas. That's not okay. We need to massively expand and promote Canadian mining, Canadian energy, if we want to okay. have more electric vehicles. Peter McCartney, your thoughts? Yeah, um, there was a lot there to respond to. I think in terms of safety, there's a lot of factors that go into what makes a vehicle safe. Uh, weight is obviously one of them, but the size is one. You are um, much more likely to be killed in an accident if you are hit uh, by a vehicle with a five or even six foot hood um, than by you know a smaller car that you might fall onto the hood as opposed to underneath the vehicle. Um, so we need to be, I, I think we should, we currently only consider safety for the people inside uh, our vehicles, uh, and we need to be running these tests and um, and actually making standards so that it protects the people who are outside the vehicle in the event of a collision. Um, when it comes to you know energy and and mining and Canadian uh, energy and all these things, why would we 
continue to increase the amount of pollution we are putting in the atmosphere with um, fracking for gas and then use that money to attempt to reduce the amount of pollution elsewhere. We need to do uh, both. We need to cut our pollution from transportation by funding things like transit, uh, but we shouldn't do it by working against our own objectives by increasing the amount of pollution we're putting into the atmosphere with fracking for natural gas. Mike, Mike okay, call, yeah, quick, re- quick response. Go ahead. It makes no sense for climate change campaigners to not care about reducing global emissions. Canadian LNG can help other countries reduce their coal-fired power. Korea, Japan, Germany, countries are coming to Canada. Their, their leaders are coming to Canada asking for our resources. Global demand is increasing. Previously, Peter said good for Aramco and Saudi Arabia to produce more oil. Well, I think we should have Canada in the game, and I think we should be the last barrel produced because we're committed to continually reducing our emissions. And this is Canadian families and Canadian jobs and livelihoods we're talking about. I support that all day, every day. All right, we continue with our supersized car and truck debate. My guests are Peter McCartney, Cody Battersill, lots of calls. Joey in Vancouver. Hi, Joey, go ahead. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. Yeah, yeah. No, I think, I don't think cars are too big. I don't think people just don't know how to drive cars, you know what I'm saying? Like, like the size is good, but, like, people just aren't, aren't too good with the size of vehicles, you know? Well, you think sometimes people don't know how to drive a larger vehicle? They drive... Exactly, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, they don't, like they, don't, they don't take too much care into driving them. Like, they don't walk, they don't check, bump into things, you know? Okay, Joey, thank you for that. Cody, what do you think of that argument? Well, I mean, uh, you know, let's increase our enforcement of distracted driving regulations. Let's add more required safety features to all vehicles. Let's work on better uh, educating uh, everyone about being distracted when driving and also when walking. Sometimes people might have headphones in, might miss a signal. There's a lot of things we can do here to make this as safe as possible for everyone, which is and should be our goal. And uh, let's make sure that we're not letting people off the hook with driving infractions, and let's make people learn better. Peter, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I I think we would all do better with uh, better drivers on the road. Complaining about drivers is the national pastime, but I do think, you know, there's something fundamental about uh, if that driver is in a giant vehicle versus a, you know, small sedan, um, and they do, they are a bad driver and they do end up hitting someone in a crosswalk or something like that. Um, they have a much higher chance of survival if they are in a smaller vehicle. And it, I, I have to point out that if the goal is to keep people safe, um, we should be keeping people safe from the climate disasters that we are seeing all over the world. And that means doing everything we can to cut our climate pollution and so, uh, you know, it, it's funny to me that Cody thinks that uh, that that should be the agreed upon goal. And the sooner that we stop burning fossil fuels, the safer we will be. Let's go to Richard on the phone line in Vancouver. Hi, Richard. Go ahead. Hi there, guys. CKNW News Flash Ford has now shut down their F-150 lightning production plant down in the United States because of problems with batteries. There's a lot of problems oh. with um, Tesla's getting on blowing up and going on fire and everything like that. The electric car thing is uh, unproven technology. It costs a lot more, about $20,000, up to $20,000 more per, per vehicle. The other thing, I'm glad that you brought up the, the cobalt thing. 
uh, over 50% of the co- uh, cobalt that's used in lithium batteries comes from the Congo slave and child labor. It's a, it's a terrible what's happening in, in that country in terms of the production of cobalt. The other thing I'd like to mention quickly is that the vast majority of the world gets its electricity from coal and oil-fired plants. So, you know, maybe natural gas and other technologies are better to a better way to go in the end. But I think that, you know, okay. one last point, too, is yeah. licensing probably on heavier vehicles for pleasure use only might be a way of discouraging. The Peter, Peter, Peter McCartney, your thoughts? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think there, there are definitely impacts of uh, electric vehicles. They're needed in some situations by some people. But, you know, we do have to... Um, make it more convenient, more affordable, and easier to take transit, to uh, design walkable communities where you don't need to go more than 15 minutes from your home. Um, And then in terms of uh, switching coal for gas, gas actually heats the climate faster than coal. And so all of this talk about getting uh, other nations off of coal onto gas is just swapping out one fossil fuel for another one. We have the technology to do better um, with renewable energy and to power our lives without polluting the climate okay. that we all rely on. Cody. Oh, Peter's admitted in the past we don't have storage technology. We need for, for intermittent renewables. Not we true. need all of the above. We need pragmatic approach to support Canadian families, safety for human rights, safety for pedestrians at home, safety for children around the world working in these cobalt mines. So we need to really be thinking about getting Canada in the game, mining, energy, and what Peter's saying, Canada's already a leader in reducing flaring and methane. That's why other countries come here to learn how we do it. So Peter's wrong saying that it's better to have coal than gas or that the two are the same. Peter and his friends are also against hydro and nuclear. And he said there's not storage yet. So for, for, for wind and solar, plus the wind doesn't always blow. The sun doesn't always shine. We need all of the above. We need to be pragmatic. Okay. And Okay, Peter, what do you say to it? What do you say to that? Go ahead. I'd I'd like to respond to this because Cody's brought this up a couple times that I have, you know, supposedly said that we can't do wind and solar. What I said is that by the time a grid has issues with the intermittency of wind and solar, they have about half of their energy coming from wind and solar. And so we are miles away in most of the world from being able, uh, from having, needing the energy storage that we are talking about. And that technology is coming along and will be there by the time we ever were to experience any issues um, from okay. wind and solar. So I do want to make that point clear. That's, uh, that's just not true. And Cody's putting words in my mouth when, uh, when he says that. Okay. Vicki in Kelowna, Vicki, you got 30 seconds here. Okay. Oh, go ahead. Good morning. Um, I would like to see some sort of regulations uh, carried through. I understand there is a regulation about how high your headlights can be from the road surface because those big trucks, they're up high, and actually their headlights are at my eye level when I'm driving. Okay. And they put those big tires on as well, and it lifts their headlights up higher. Okay, Peter, do you think there should be some? We've got one minute left, so you get 30 seconds each here, guys. Uh, Peter, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, we need to be designing for safety all over. Um, at the moment, we only test for the people who are inside the vehicle. We need to be designing uh, for what about people who get hit by this vehicle, but also we should be designing for safety when it comes to the global climate and um, making sure that we are living our lives in a way that is not making um, 
life unsafe for people all over the world okay. with the climate disasters that we are seeing. Cody, 20 seconds. Go ahead. We know what happens when we block Canadian resources. Other countries benefit. and We are seeing what's happening right now in Ukraine and all over the world. So let's talk about making life better and safer for all our allies and our partners. When we talk about giant vehicles, we also have to talk about weight. And I like electric vehicles, but they are heavy. Okay. So there's much more here to be discussed about making it safe for pedestrians. Thanks, Jet. Thank you, others. gentlemen. Uh, Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.